welcome to the Law Down Under podcast with Barrister Chris Patterson, where we'll give you insights into the law in New Zealand and Australia, its application and the law's future. Each episode features a new guest who will inspire your interest in the law and give you a greater understanding of the legal issues that help shape our justice system here down under. We thank you for tuning in and enjoy the podcast. I have with me in the studio today, Vicky Amundsen, who is the director of Vicky Amundsen Trust Law, specialising in all areas of trust and estate law and practice. She is the author of several texts on trusts and trustees, most recently including Trustees Liability, a practical guide to legal issues for older people, the Trustees Handbook and the Taxation of Trusts. Vicky is a highly regarded conference and webinar presenter and further created the blog Matter of Trust. Vicky's approach to trust law is practical, but it's also grounded on a good understanding of trust law principles related to legislation and case law. She has extensive experience in creation and management of client trusts, believing they play an essential role in modern family and business management. Good morning, Vicky. How are you? Good, thank you. And good morning, Chris. Yeah, Kira. Now, look, it's great to have you here. We've got a lot to cover because trust is actually a very, very broad, wide topic. And uh, boy, I'm really looking forward to this. So the first question that I've got for you, and I've just been dying to ask someone who might know, and really, Vicky, I, I think you're probably the most qualified person that I've come across for a long time on this, is is the modern trust, does it actually serve any practical benefit to society? Really good question. Um, my, my first sort of facetious answer would be, Yes, because that will put my delicious granddaughter through her private school education. And so I have to say yes. And the reason I say that is because historically trusts have proven themselves as the best form of long-term intergenerational asset protection, but they're not magic and and they're not perfect. And one of the practical realities of trusts is the earliest evidence of a trust or example was what used to be called the use. And some incredibly clever person. And when you have those questions, you know, who would you have for your, you know, your, you know, fantasy dinner party? And um, one of the people at my dinner party would be that the person who came up with it, because the very first example of a trust um, is allegedly around the time of the Crusades. People worked out pretty quickly that the Crusades was pretty much one-way traffic. You're unlikely to come back. And at that point, you couldn't. If you were, you know, your, your, your average sort of man on the street, so to speak, out there farming, you've got a wife and some children, but you couldn't bequeath that land by will. And in the event that you did not come back from the Crusades, the land would pass to your feudal overlord and the wife and children are literally out in the cold. And it's pretty grim for them. And so the very earliest um, recorded examples of what we now consider the trust was the construct of, hey, mate, I've been called up to the Crusades. We all know I'm probably not coming back. So I'm giving you my land. But it's not for you. You're going to own it, but it's going to be for the benefit of my wife and children. And I expect that there was a little subtext. And in the unlikely event I come back, you have to give it back to me. But of course, no one ever came back. So that bit never got tested. And and so the thing about trusts is that they, the first trusts were, you know, 
constructed, created, whatever terminology you want, with the with the best of intentions, but they have always been a devoidance advice device. And so what that means is that the first trusts were to reflect the fact that bequeathing assets by will was not possible. So there's always been this sort of jump step of every time trusts could exploit an advantage, then there would be, you know, commonly a legislative change or it might be a change in the common law. So that there's always been this ongoing check and balance. And you could use that and say, well, see, that means they've always really been bad. Or you could say to the converse, see, they've always been inherently good, but they must be constantly moderated. And so so trusts have existed for hundreds of years, and historically I think it's indisputable that they have proven themselves as the best form of long-term intergenerational asset protection. But you've got to have them for the right reason. And for example, and you know, a very good reason, um, my oldest um, child is autistic. Um, he's, he, he functions. He is the father of my delicious granddaughter. But my son is an example of somebody who a trust is potentially a really good idea because he is someone who could potentially be persuaded to make some foolish financial decisions. And he's at the, you know, the upper end of children in the autistic spectrum and can work quite well. Another example is I share the care of a special needs boy. And he is 34 years old, but don't tell him that. He thinks he's 33. We haven't had the birthday party yet because of COVID. Unfortunately, you can keep on telling him, yes, it will be your birthday soon. But he could never own money. He will never have legal capacity. And so for people like my son and Joseph, trusts are an opportunity to protect wealth that might be created in a single generation, but to ensure that it's properly managed for future generations. The other thing that trusts have shown themselves to be particularly good for is when you've got significant wealth, if you die, and particularly if you've got a large family, it's then fragmented amongst the family members. Whereas trusts allow that wealth to be amalgamated so that from great wealth you can grow greater wealth than what you can if you fragment it. And if some of the family members aren't as capable as others, they get the benefit of good management so that all of the family benefit consistently from generation to generation. Where trusts have been problematic, though, is in most jurisdictions, trust must come to an end. And that is where some of New Zealand's big families, and when I say big, as in high wealth, who have used trusts, have had to manage that transition from the end of one trust to the start of another very carefully. Okay, what we might do, Vicky, is I think we'll come back to that point because we're jumping over quite a few topics. And I know that listeners will probably want a deeper dive into some of those points that you've made because you've made some amazing points. I know I'm super keen to um, uh, explore some of them with you in a bit more detail. Let's take a step back because there's – we'll put it this way – a number of the listeners uh, come to this podcast with a different level of knowledge around law, and, and trust law is, you know, is still an area that is a little bit um, cloaked in uh, mystery because of its uh, historical origins. Like as you rightly say, it goes back hundreds of years. Um, why don't we start off with first of all, how would you, in layperson's terms, describe what a trust actually is? You can look at it two ways. One, you can look at the definition in the Trust Act, 
And for yeah. anyone who's not familiar with trusts, New Zealand got a new Trusts Act that came into full force and effect last year. And at the very fundamental level, a trust requires three things. You must have certainty that a trust is intended. You must be able to identify who can benefit. And you must be able to identify trust property. And and that that at the really simple level, it's as simple as that. You do not even require a written document. Okay. So um, I guess that probably reflects to a degree the historical uh, context of trust law in, in New Zealand in particular. I mean, trusts were a, a creation of the courts of, uh, well, at one point, uh, the courts of uh, chancery and equity. Is that is that right? In Correct. The, in the UK. Yeah. And uh, New Zealand, of course, when when we were settled, um, like Australia as well, there was somewhat of a of a of a fusion or a merging between the common law courts and the courts of uh, chancery and equity. So we have here in New Zealand, we've got our High Court, which um, generally is will, will deal with most trust issues, uh, and likewise in Australia, most of the states and territories with their Supreme Courts, which also have the same uh, um, uh, structure. But uh, in some of the states, I know in New South Wales, they still have a uh, an equity court. So they've, they've got, although it's a division of their uh, of their Supreme Court, um, well, does this reflect somewhat that historical shift? And you've mentioned that we've got a new act. Um, what what is the new act primarily brought to the table in terms of our laws here in New Zealand? What the new act has brought to the table primarily is it melds what at common law was called the three certainties, which are those fundamental aspects of a trust. But it also confirms... So just just to recap, so intention is... is certainty of intention, yep. who can benefit, and property. And property. Okay, great. But uh, what it also does is it recognises the fact, and going back to the early example of the Crusades, the division of legal ownership and beneficial ownership. So that how trusts work is that you've got the trustees, who you might consider the legal face of the trust. Parents settle a family trust for their children and wider family. They can be the trustees. They don't have to be. They can have a professional trustee as well. Can I, can I just, let's explore this. You, you've mentioned settlers. What, what, what's the role of a settler versus a trustee? The settler is the person or persons who have that initial intention. Some trusts are actually settled by trustees by way of declaration and there won't be a named set law. Okay, so this goes back to that first essential element of the three elements of a trust and that's that certainty of intention. And and this is where the settler uh, will often play a role, correct? Yes, and the role of the set law at times is overstated because all they do is they start it. And so if you've got a conventional trust deed, trust, you'll have a trust deed and you'll have someone named as a set law. Historically in New Zealand, prior to, well prior to the Trusts Act, we used to have um, asset and estate duty. And so back then, trusts were commonly set up. There might have been a family with a reasonable amount of wealth. And like avoid, a farming family, for example. Farms are classic users yeah. of trusts. And, and, and there's two reasons that farms are big users of trusts. One, there can be big wealth. and Well, actually three reasons. One, there can be big wealth. Two, there can also be 
to avoid that fragmentation so that you don't end up having to divide up the farm on a death because, you know, one farm, three children, you know, do the math, you can see the problem. And then the other aspect of it is perhaps farms almost more than any other trusts, the benefit of specialised trustees who have specialised knowledge and can properly guide is really important. And so you've asked about trusts in New Zealand New Zealand started really adopting trusts. The first ones were mostly around the 60s, and up until then, trusts were virtually unheard of. And and by that, I'm not talking about testamentary trust that might arise under a will, but an inter vivos or trust settled during someone's life, up until the 60s, were largely unheard of. And then New Zealand, they started to become more popular, hummed along until the 90s, and then in the 90s they really took off. Can I can I just jump in there? Um, so one of my first jobs that I've ever had, in fact I don't think I've ever had a better job since, <laughs> was working for a small uh, provincial rural law firm in central Hawke's Bay called Mackay Mackey. Yep. Okay? And... Uh, one of the founding partners of that firm was Kevin Mackay, and um, I understand his, um, his his brother Ian Mackay was president of the Court of Appeal at one point. <laughs> um, anyway, Ke- Kevin, when I was uh, this was go back to the early nineties when when I was working there as a summer clerk, uh, it, was, it was such a great job. Um, uh, Kevin would come into the into, into the into the office at about ten o'clock in the morning, and he'd leave at about two thirty. And he, he would have been in his late seventies, and and I said to him, um, I said, oh, you know, like, you know, why do why do you keep coming in here? And he said, well, he goes, Russ, he said, in the seventies, I formed a lot of trusts, like a lot, in fact, more than anyone else in the country. Um, there were there was a, a lot of work done, and he said, you know, here we are, twenty five years, a quarter of a century later on, and he said, they've actually grown. <laughs> Growing a lot. And he said, there's a lot of work to be done. And uh, and he said, and this is just how trusts are going to operate going forward. They are something that will be intergenerational and they will keep legal practices. And he said, like this one, busy for, for decades. Um, I mean, has that been your experience looking at trusts that have been around for a few years? Very much so. And some of those earlier trusts, dare I say, were possibly settled perhaps commonly for better reasons. What we started really getting a bit later was the Me Too trusts. And as New Zealanders, you know, we're a very egalitarian society and we have a huge number of, and for whatever reason, New Zealand is reputed, well, it was, it might be changing a little bit now and I'll explain why, reputed as having more trusts per head of capita than anywhere in the world. Uh, do you have a do you have a theory on that? What what do you have any theories as to why New Zealanders appear to love trusts? I think the first goes back to the, that egalitarianism. You know, he or she or they aren't better than me. They've got one. I want one. And we had a couple of very specific reasons that made trusts work. So as a way to get around estate duty, if trusts were managed properly, that was, and that never really got tested because estate duty was abolished in the early 90s. Although anyone who's watching headlines right now, you know, watch this space. Um, Then the next driver for trusts was probably residential care subsidies. And so back then, if some 
you know, if someone didn't, if a couple didn't have massive assets, they had modest assets, but if they managed their gifting well, because back then we had gift duty, they could slowly dispose of their assets in a permissible fashion so that by the time they might require long-term care, they would, on paper, have no assets. They could They'd benefited from those assets during their life, but they were protected from subsidies. And so that was considered really attractive. The other thing that was really attractive was for a long period of time, we had a division of tax rates so that there was a top marginal rate that was higher than the flat trust rate. And so trusts could be more tax effective. And at the risk of boring some people, just an important piece of tax law that applies to trusts, When you've got assets that are owned by a trust and so the trustees derive income, they have a choice to make each year in whole or in part. So here's my income, imaginary $100. I can keep this income and right now if I do that, that'll be taxed at a flat rate of 33%. Or I can distribute that income, keep some, distribute some or distribute all of it to the beneficiaries. And this is one of the real, that has been one of the real attractions of trusts is that you might have a beneficiary on a lower tax rate and you can properly, properly divide it up so that you take advantage of that lower rate. And so that means that you can manage income in a family or a group of families more effectively, but you have to be really careful and have good advice because at what point has sensible administration of income within a family become tax avoidance? Okay. Well, look, that, that raises, um, I mean, I'm going back a couple of years ago. You, you may have some familiarity and, and of course, you know, I'm not going to ask you to speak out of, out of, out of, out of turn on these things. The, the Panama Papers were suggesting that New Zealand was a haven for uh, offshore trust formation. Um, and mainly because of uh, the way in which our uh, trust laws operated here. Um, I mean, was that, was that true? Were we operating in a regime that encouraged people overseas to set up trusts in New Zealand to hide their income, for example? It might have looked that way. However, and again, New Zealand, unlike most of the world, taxes trusts by reference to the residence of the set law. Most of the world, however, taxes trusts by reference to the residence of the trustees. So how for, and so the, the trust that the Panama Papers were referring to are what we would consider in New Zealand a foreign trust. That means the set law is not resident in New Zealand. The trustee is. But there may be no assets in New Zealand because how foreign trusts commonly work, if you like, is that you've got a New Zealand resident trustee. We're a popular jurisdiction for trusts because we've got, we're considered to have a stable political climate. We have clear, accessible trust law and easy access to the courts so that if there is a dispute, you know, the time and cost to get a matter to court is relatively expedient. And what was often overlooked in the reporting regarding the Panama Papers, because don't let the facts get in the way of a good story, If you're the New Zealand resident trustee of a foreign trust and you own assets around the world, unless those assets are in a low or no tax jurisdiction, you're liable for the tax in all those jurisdictions. You don't escape it just because you might not be required to report or record income here in New Zealand. So a lot of misunderstanding. 
Um, well, look, that's interesting. Look, another area where this is just a perception of mine uh, has um, really allowed New Zealanders to fall in love with trusts is around residential property investment. Now, the reason why I say that is this. Back in the noughties, uh, I had a client uh, had me bankrupt a man called Phil Jones, and he had a business called Rich Mastery. Now, um, Phil Jones was almost like a, a property evangelical um, preacher, and he would have these sessions where he would get lots of people into a big conference room, maybe at the Stanford Plaza, and so you'd have three or 400 people in there, and he'd come on stage, and he'd have his Ferrari out the front and bring his wife on, and he'd say to people, look how successful I am, and you're all working, and you're fools, and you can make money by absolutely doing nothing other than investing in residential property in New Zealand uh, because you get uh, tax-free gains and you can offset your income against um, uh, the costs of uh, holding these properties as they're going up in value. Um, but what he was also doing, and he's not the only one who, who was uh, advocating this, is he's telling people to go out and as part of their investment structure, they needed a trust and all the property should be held in, in, in some form of trust. Um, was that your experience? With it? Did you have you come across people selling, you know, needing trusts? And lo- back in the day, there were loss attributing qualifying companies. You can't do them uh, as much anymore. But that really was a was a big push. And I understand a few accountancy firms in Auckland have done extremely well in forming trusts so that people could hold rental properties. Huge driver behind it, and and to a certain extent, it could work, but it depended on being very clear which trusts owned what. And so, what people would commonly do, they'd settle one trust to own the family home because that was sacrosanct. Then there would be another trust that might own shares in a look-through company. Um, used to be as you've said, loss attributing qualifying company, or those shares might be held personally for a period of time so that you would have, call it the the bank trust or the, the asset trust that you'd borrow against. And so that would, that would provide security for um, the trust or company that was going to own the rental properties. So there was still exposure to the bank, but not to anybody else. And so, and that way, by di- by dividing up that ownership, you could then use one trust for the deposit to borrow, and then the other trust would borrow the rest of the borrowings. And so, the reason you needed the trust in there was to create this differential ownership, even though ultimately it might be the same set laws behind it. Yeah. But where some of them got really unstuck is. You know, and negative equity and, and negative gearing. You know that those were the buzzwords. And at that point, deposit requirements were very low, and so you could make those those schemes work. And I, I say scheme, not because it was necessarily anything bad about it, but it was a plan, and you had to follow it through. And where people started getting into trouble is the wrong trust would purchase. Or there would, um, and some of them where they really started to make serious money, they'd register for GST 
And so the property, the, the family home owning trust would not be registered, but the others might be registered. And so that meant because they were then saying, we've got an activity, we're actually carrying on a tax taxable activity. So we're not just buying rental properties for long-term hold, we're trading. So then they could claim a GST, they claim the GST back. So on the purchase. The, on the purchase. So yeah. that was funding the deposit. Yeah. And so if it was managed well, it was really good. But then we started to get a lot of inflation and the, the free GST going in became a lot more GST going out. On the sale. On the sale. Yeah. And so it started to unravel a bit. But the, the basic premise of keep your keep the things that are important in a trust that is not doesn't own your risky things that model can still work really well now because well, well this is your this is your kind of your asset protection creditor yeah. protection model look um one concept one trust label or what can be defined as a as, as a sort of a label applied to some trusts that I wanted to cover off with you is the concept of a of a sham trust um and I'm thinking of regal castings and light body, you know, the, the, the sort of scenario where the use of trust structures, or should I say the misuse of them, um, isn't accepted by the courts and the courts say, well, we're not going to recognise that as a trust. Um, so so what, what's, a, what's a sham trust? A sham trust is a very, very rare beast. We're talking mowers in reality, but it's a term that is used a lot. So... If we just take one step back to your regal castings type scenario, so and, and what Chris is talking about there is that commonly um, you've got these you know valuable assets in a trust and you might have a business and you're you're gifting off and so how trusts used to work because we used to have gift duty, you know Chris couldn't take his multi million dollar property and say, gosh, you know I I did you know gave Vicky some advice and it was you know. I, I'm thinking now she might sue me, and, and so I, I want to protect it from her, and <laughs> and you know my you know next girlfriend or exactly. um, or, or or whoever it might even be my children. I don't want them to to have a crack at it. Yeah, all of those reasons, and so I'm going to put it into a trust. Nowadays, you can put it into a trust, and you can gift everything. Um, and there's no gift duty. Back in the regal castings days, you couldn't gift everything. You could only gift off at twenty seven thousand a year. So and there'd be these gifting regimes that would go on every year. Correct. The accountants would prefer, would prepare a gifting statement and forgiveness, deed of forgiveness, etc. Whereas that that's not there anymore. That's not yeah. there anymore. And actually, it's a real pity it's not. And I'll explain why. Because back then, you so if you were selling, and we'll use the classical. $270,000 asset for obvious reasons because $270,000 divided by 10. So I could gift off 27000 a year. So I would sell the asset that I own to the trust, $270,000, immediately forgive 27000 and then each year thereafter would forgive another twenty-seven. So I would have an exposure still, for example, to a creditor up to the amount that has not yet been forgiven but any capital gain is protected in the new trust. And what happened in Regal Castings, though, is that there were three trustees of the trust. There's a gifting program continuing. And what the other trustees didn't know about was that there'd been a guarantee given to some trade creditors. And so when they were doing their gifting, 
what the court decided is that even though the other trustees didn't know that when um, Mr. Regal was making his his annual gift, I'll call him, the name's not quite correct, but it sort of makes sense here, making his annual gift and you go to that little meeting and the co-trustee is the lawyer or the accountant who has been involved from the start, they didn't know about this guarantee that was fluctuating year in, year out. And so what happened when the gift was made is that they were imputed with the knowledge that one year when he made the gift, it was to defeat creditors. And so it didn't make the trust a sham, but it had the same sort of effect because it meant that the gift was ineffective because even though the trustees who were effectively receiving the benefit of that forgiveness of debt, they're imputed with his knowledge. And this and this is where our Property Law Act would click in on that idea of um, a person um, uh, distancing themselves from an asset. In this case, it's it's a debt, um, but with the intention to defeat creditors, and that could be unwound. Correct. Yeah. So if you're defeating creditors, it doesn't make the trust itself a sham, but it means the transaction whereby you've transferred assets can be unwound in whole or in part. Okay. Now, there's also another concept, um, which is really for some mainly creditors, to attack trusts, and that's the concept of a, an alter ego where they say this was never actually ever a trust in the first place. Now, is, is that going back to your point of the three essential elements of a trust and that certainty of intention? Is that where it fits in? There's two things there. One, it goes back to that certainty of you know th- those elements to make up a trust. But if you've got a sham or what might be referred in some jurisdictions as an alter ego, what you've got there is something that on paper looks like a trust, yep. but you and I would do something like we'd say, okay, Chris, here's my trustee. Um, I'm going to name the trustees as you and me or you and whoever. And But really, it's just me. And we'll put it away and we're never going to talk about it. But if anything bad happens, we'll pull it out and then we'll go, ta-da, oh, it was a trust. And, and So, so it what- sits in a drawer for, for 15 years gathering dust um, with you, um, yep. just behaving like life goes on, um, and then as a form of insurance. And if a claim comes in for some reason and you go, oh, I've got this trust deed, let's pull it out and and think about it for the first time in 15 years. And that would be what is called um, a sham or because what you've got is that you never intended a trust. You go back to those certainties and although we had a trust deed, that was all just a big fat lie. So (laughs) what you're saying here, Vicky, is this where, you know, the actions, subsequent actions since the formation of the trust, the courts can draw an inference to say, well, there can't have been the intention here because you actually haven't treated it as if it is a trust since it was formed. No, believe it or not, no. It sounds right, but it's not. So that what used to be called an emerging sham. So yeah. sometimes what happens is you might start off with a perfectly good intention. You're not intending a sham, but you don't do it properly. You don't have trustee meetings. Your independent trustee's got no idea what's going on. And so, and why do you want it to be a sham? Well, let's say that you're in a relationship and all of the assets are in a trust and then the relationship turns sour and then you know the, the partner or spouse realises that, hang on a minute, there's no relationship property. Shock, horror. So ignoring the remedies for now under the Property Relationships Act, it's very common in relationship breakdowns to argue it's a sham because if it's a sham, 
even though we might have all the legal niceties and Chris's name is on the title as one of the co-trustees, if it's a sham, it's nothing and it goes back. And so then my relationship partner or if it's a business creditor claim, all those assets are really still Vicky's and so they're available to those creditors. But the reality is proving a sham is incredibly difficult and when we got the Trust Act that we talked about at the very start, one of the things that the Law Commission looked at is should we say in the Trust Act what a sham is? So rather than just have this what does it need, what do you have to have to have a trust, Mm. should we say what do we have to have to not be a trust? And there was a purposeful decision made that we would not do that because the Law Commission didn't want there to be a target. They didn't want people to be able to say, okay, that's what a sham is, so we'll go as close as we can but not quite get there so we can make it look like a trust. We don't have to do anything, but it's still a valid trust if we need it. And so there are very, very few cases in New Zealand where a sham has been found. But what I think we're going to find happening moving forward is there's going to be something worse than a sham. Okay, that sounds frightening. What, and, and what would that be? Breach of trust. Yep. And so what's going to happen, and we're starting, to, we're starting to get the first nibbles now, because what the Trust Act did is while much of the Trust Act restates the law, but one of the things it did is it changed the legal test or obligations regarding disclosure. Yes. And so so what that means is that you'll hear us talk, you know, we've talked about, you know, what is a trust? You know, you, you you intend to trust, you've got some stuff and you've got some beneficiaries. What does it mean to be a beneficiary of a trust? Okay, so uh, I understand from the Law Commission that one of the the main recommendations that they made, which seems to have made it into our Trust Act, is uh, increasing the amount of information that beneficiaries can get. Can you tell us what the limits were prior to the Trust Act and then what the Trust Act did to change that in terms of uh, information flow between uh, beneficiaries with trustees? Yes, I can. There's effectively a two-stage process. Up until about 20 years ago, if you wanted information, you had to show that you were what is often referred to as a final beneficiary. So trust then could last for 80 years, generally. Now they can last for up to 125. And because most New Zealand trusts that we're talking about today are what are called discretionary trusts, you get what the trustees give you at their discretion. Okay, right. So with the discretionary trust, which I agree with you, that's my perception, that the large majority of trusts in New Zealand are family discretionary trusts. You'll have the, the trustees who often, you know, formed the trust and one or more of them may be a final beneficiary. And then there'll be a list of these discretionary beneficiaries, which uh, often are family members, um, maybe the next generation down. Um, That's your experience? Usually the final beneficiaries might be children or grandchildren, and that reflects the fact for how long a trust can last. There's a big misunderstanding, in my view, over what what it means to be a final beneficiary. In my view, as a final beneficiary, all you are is you're a repository for if the trust comes to an end and there if it's are wound ass- up. Yep, yep. all these these assets left, say it's run, yep. it's it's 80 years or it's 125, yep. all those final beneficiaries really are, that, that goes back to the certainty so that we know if the trustees never did anything 
all this stuff left, who's going to get it when it ends? However, the the place of the final beneficiary has often, to my mind, been artificially elevated. But why it was important for disclosure is up until about 20 years ago, if you wanted information, you had to show that you had a proprietary interest in the trust, not a discretionary interest, as in you get what the trustees give you. And so to get information, you had to show you were a final beneficiary and so not many people actually met that test. Yeah, so the discretionary beneficiaries kind of have this almost like contingent interest. Correct. It's contingent on the trustees going, yeah, we're actually going to make a distribution to to these discretionary beneficiaries. It's only the final beneficiaries that actually had a proprietary uh, interest in the, in the trust property. Correct. Yeah. And so, and then about 20 years ago, a case called Rosewood and Smith, the court said, hang on a minute, this is wrong. Um, you don't have to prove a proprietary interest because exactly as you just said, Chris, as a final beneficiary, you've got what the courts in New Zealand and Johns and Johns called a future contingent proprietary, proprietary interest. So lots, you've got nothing unless you get to the end and you're still alive and there's still property. So what the courts then started saying was, well, hang on a minute. If you're a beneficiary, you've got a right to be considered. There's got to be more. And so what the court started doing was saying, well, if you're a discretionary beneficiary, how on earth will you know if the trustees are managing those assets well? And so the courts started saying, if you ask for information, then the trustees have to seriously consider giving it to you because that's how you ensure the due and proper administration of the trust. But prior to the Trust Act, the test was, one, no obligation generally for a discretionary trust to tell someone they're a beneficiary and so there was no positive obligation and if anyone wants to question that um, we lost a case a couple of years ago against the New Plymouth um, Family Court when we, try, when we tried to argue that if the trustees didn't tell the beneficiaries surely it was the court's obligation and the court said no not their obligation not ours and so at that point but if you knew or suspected and you asked for information, then it was an exercise of discretion for the, with no presumption either way. So okay, so can I just run a couple of concepts past your ideas? The first idea is this. Um, it does seem to me to make logical sense that the person who's or a person who's going to be interested in whether trustees are actually discharging their duties is going to be a beneficiary because they've got an interest in making sure that the trustees are actually doing their job right. Would you agree with that? Very, very big interest. Yeah, okay. And the, the, the second part to, to that is that the trustees may actually possibly be in conflict with a beneficiary, and I'll just give one common example – and that is where um, uh, the family there, there has has there's been separations within the family. So you could have the the children from the first marriage, um, and then you've got the children from the second marriage, and then you've got a trustee who was the the husband or the wife from the first marriage, um, or or a grandparent from the first marriage, and there could be a, a scenario where you've got effectively two interest groups um, being tied up in one trust. Is that something you've come across? Yes, it is. And often that comes down to bad or ill-considered drafting. So what the Trusts Act said 
was that the law changed so that we went from this exercise of discretion to a presumption that trustees will give basic trust information to every beneficiary. Okay. So, the, so far more of an open book scenario so that if you're named as a beneficiary, you can get access to presumably not all information that the trust has got. There must be categories. I think the Act um, has categories of information that they, that trust their beneficiaries can get. There's two things going on. One is the presumption of basic information, and the basic information is literally that. It's basic. You are a beneficiary. These are the. This is how you contact the trustees. There's also an op- a presumption that every time there's a change of trustees, you'll update the beneficiaries. You can ask for trust information, including the trust deed and any other information. Which which makes sense because if you're a benef- named as a beneficiary, um, you should be told that you've been named as a beneficiary of a trust. I mean, it's kind of ludicrous that that you be there and not know that you're a beneficiary to a trust. You would think, but then you've got to go back and look at the trust deeds. So what the Act also says is that's the first starting presumption, but how do trustees make that decision? And there's factors set out in the Act, huge range of factors to take into consideration in deciding whether or not to make that basic information available. Okay, so let's um, jump back a little bit. Um, what part of all of this is so that the beneficiaries who have got a vested interest can actually be in a position, because knowledge is power, to to know whether or not the trustees are discharging their duties. What what are the, the core duties of a trustee? The most core duties is the duty of utmost fidelity and good faith. Okay, what does that mean? That means that you manage the trust assets for the benefit of the beneficiaries. But this is where it gets tricky because if your trust is a simple trust with a small class of beneficiaries, where the beneficiaries might be, you know, Chris and his spouse or partner and children, that's pretty straightforward. But a lot of our trustees, particularly back in the 80s and 90s, had huge classes of beneficiaries. So they might name um, relatives to the sixth degree. So you might actually have a really large class of beneficiaries. And like, so, for example, um, a, a, a Maori iwi who have got a, a large tract of land um, that's owned um, in, a, in a trust structure might, might name literally hundreds of, of beneficiaries. Correct. I, I once advised on a trust deed where the beneficiaries were every person in New Zealand. It's a family yeah. trust. Right. Well. And, and so... Part of, part of that obligation or the presumption that you will make information available is identifying within those classes, and sometimes beneficiaries are there by name, sometimes they're in a class, it's identifying by reference to perhaps what the settler intended, what the value of the assets, you know, if you've got a bigger assets, that might warrant further disclosure, not many assets, not so much disclosure. But but this is where it starts to go back to your example of the blended family, where you might have a trustee who is sided very much with you know the first you know, family or the second family. If they don't properly execute their duties in respect of both limbs, that's a breach of trust. Okay, so what, what are the consequences for a trustee if, if, if a court says you've breached your duties and there's been a loss suffered um, by the trust? If you've breached your duties and there's been a loss suffered, you can be required to make good the trust. 
Even if you are an independent, even if you didn't benefit from the trust, there's a case called Spencer and Spencer, and that's where a trust was settled following a relationship breakdown, and the trustees were Mr. Spencer, his lawyer, and his accountant. And that trust was a term of that trust that there was a fixed amount to be paid to one of his children. and But over time, his co-trustees um, allowed you know, the trust to enter into some pretty sweetheart management deals, lease arrangements, and the trust ran out of money. And so there was, they, the trust was sued for not making those payments. They felt that they had acted always with their friends' interests in mind. And what the court made very clear as a trustee, you've got to be very clear not to mix the moral ideas of duties and, and what you owe to someone with honesty in a trust context where you are effectively a functionary or an automaton who who works with, you know, unemotive precision to identify the beneficiaries, their needs, stays informed and, and makes decisions. Okay, so what happens if, if you've got three trustees and one of the trustees has gone a bit rogue and has, has breached duties as a trustee. Are the other two trustees liable for that? Good question. Some trustees will say you have no obligation as a co-trustee to sue your co-trustees. But when that does happen, generally it is incumbent on the, the remaining trustees if they can't either get that trustee removed and then deal with any breach to go to court for directions and say, hey, we've got some problems here. But often trustees are often reluctant to go to court and that's because it's often a public forum. It can take time. It costs money. Well, who pays for that? Like if a trustee goes, look, we've got a, a trust trustee who's gone rogue. They won't step down. Uh, we need to get directions from the court. Um, yeah. $300,000 sitting in the trust bank account, so there's money there. Can can they use that money to, to fund these applications? They can, but there can be a sting in the tail. So generally, trustees, and particularly independent trustees, presume anything they do for the trust will be paid for from the trust. But for that to happen, it must be a properly incurred expense. And there's two ways to find out if something is properly incurred. You can wing it. You can file proceedings or defend proceedings, use money from the trust, but when you get to the final decision of the court, the court might say, well, that was a really bad idea defending that decision, yeah. and so you're going, and, and, what, and cost decisions are becoming very, very detailed. The court might say, up until this step in the proceedings, that was a reasonable thing to do. But beyond that, it was not. So you're going to get part of your costs from the trust and the rest you're going to meet personally. And because you were largely unsuccessful in the proceedings, you're going to have to pay, for example, the beneficiary's costs. And what trustees can do if they want to avoid that you know, big sting in the tail, they can either seek directions or they can seek what's called a Beto's order to say, we want to do this. Is it a proper thing to do? Will we get our costs if we do? So these aspects of trust proceedings and even beneficiaries, if trustees are being absolutely lousy, and some are, beneficiaries can actually step in to run proceedings and get a court order that their costs will be met because they're actually doing what the trustees should have done. 
And and I guess with applying for one of these uh, these these Beto's orders, which is really an, um, an order that you can incur costs. Um, you could have a, a beneficiary or other parties that ha- that that want to, I guess, um, cut off the funding for the trustees uh, opposing that to say, well, no, they 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 should fund this themselves. I mean, does that happen? It does. And most Beto's applications, the benef- more commonly than not, the ones that make their way to court, the beneficiaries. It's normally beneficiaries who are challenging it, saying, no, we don't want them having their costs from the trust because, of course, every dollar paid in trustee legal fees is a dollar not available to the beneficiaries. So they can become... A Beto's is supposed to be a, a quick and dirty, get in, get out, get a decision from the court. It's heard independently of the main proceedings because as part of a Beto's application, you've got to tell the court your strength, your weaknesses. The court's got to be fully informed. And so... Fortunately, we got high court rules last year, which are going to make it a lot easier because up until then, we didn't even have absolute you know, consistency on how the applications were being heard or the requirements. Whether it was a Part 19 originating application or whether it was done um, uh, with a statement of claim. And yeah. so, but, but, but the thing is, being a trustee, it's actually really hard and really scary. And well, why so many trustees defend their removal is beyond my comprehension. Well, look, you raise a good point. Um, w- why would someone want to be a trustee um, if, you know, you're, you could be faced with um, personal liability, um, a lot of cost, et cetera? Is there a, is there a mechanism in which um, a trustee can provide an indemnity to a, to a trustee? You, most trustees will have an indemnity. However, it is now subject to the statutory indemnity in the Trusts Act. So some trustees will say, Chris can do anything he likes. He can act in the most horrific breach of trust. He owes no duties as a trustee. You know, he's there, but whatever he does, he's golden. But what the Trusts Act has said is that irrespective of, of the terms of the trust, the minimum standard in the Trusts Act applies. And so as a trustee, you cannot totally um, immunise yourself. Some trustees deal with it by getting an indemnity from the set law. I have real concerns with that because, first off, if all of the set law's assets have been transferred to the trust, what's your indemnity worth? That's right. It's only worth the, the value of the, of the set law. Is it something where, where you could get insurance? I mean, can trustees get insurance? Trustees can get insurance. It's not common. If you're a professional trustee, um, it will commonly be covered under your professional indemnity insurance. Some you can, as a group of trustees, get insurance, but there aren't there are not a lot of products on the market, and you can't insure against everything. For example, if you don't pay your taxes. You can't get an insurance policy that says if you haven't paid the tax, you didn't pay the income tax, didn't pay the GST, then, and perhaps, good example, there's a case, Selkirk and McIntyre. Commercial property sold, GST registered. The GST wasn't returned. The professional thought that his co-trustee would return the GST, did not. And when IRD, um, you know, came knocking, it was, oh, I'm, I'm the professional, you know, see the other guy. And the with penalties that got bigger and bigger and bigger. And eventually IRD said, you know, fun fact, you know, Mr. Trustee, you either pay us the GST, you can go and recover it from your co-trustee, whatever, or we'll bankrupt you. And as a professional, if you're bankrupted, that's a bit of a problem. 
Yeah, so, so that ended up in court, not over the payment of the tax, but because at that point the professional trustee wanted an order that the co-trustee had to repay all of it. And the court said, no, you are all both required to meet a proportionate share, but we will only order that it's all paid by you know one trustee in very limited circumstances. Okay, so th- this is where a trustee is acting in their personal capacity. What about the use of corporate trustees? What, what's a corporate trustee and, and why would someone use one? There's two sorts of corporate trustees. You've either got your statutory corporate trustees, public trust perpetual guardian, and or you've got your more common um, corporate trustee that's got no assets and it is, some people consider them in a very dim light, where the, the person who might have acted personally is the director and the shareholder. I personally really like corporate trustees, so long as they're used properly, and I've got two reasons for that. The first is, if you've got a corporate trustee, I don't register mine as inactive for income tax. And that means that twice a year, I'll get a reminder. I'll get a reminder to do the tax return and I'll get a reminder from the company's office to file the annual company's office return. So the great thing about corporate trustees, if you manage them properly, you you, you don't overlook things. You can't forget about the trust. You're not one of these trustees who you're tapping on the shoulder saying, hey, Chris, remember 25 years ago you did this? And the other great thing about corporate trustees is if you've got a change of trustee, rather than, and say you own 20 properties, want a change of trustee, Chris is bored of being a trustee, he wants to retire, you're going to have to convey all of the properties to the new trustee. Whereas if you've got a corporate trustee, you can handle the the transition by changing the shareholding and the director appointment. Some people think that sounds pretty screwy and all that seems a bit devious. When I do that, I get permission from the bank and it's all done in a completely transparent fashion, but it can be a way of managing that independent trustee. It can save a lot of administration and cost, certainly. Yes, and also it can allow for natural progression over time, can allow for the um, change of directors over time and because you've got this perpetual existence rather than, you know, a trustee dies, you've got to replace them. But the other, the downside of a corporate trustee is you do owe all of the obligations that you owe for any company. And so if you use a corporate trustee to avoid a tax liability, for example, and there's a case, Vance and Lamb, where they knew there's going to be a GST shortfall, so they popped in a corporate trustee and they didn't properly test the market. And so the director was then found liable under the Companies Act for having not acted properly as a director to protect the company. So you do have an extra layer of obligation. I personally think that that helps you do the job of running a trustee better. But if you do have a corporate trustee, you can take on greater reporting obligations because of FATCA, CRS. Once you bring in a non-natural person as a trustee, that can expose the trust to greater reporting obligations. It must create a bit of a risk, though, if you've got a corporate trustee um, managing Trust A and then the corporate trustee is also managing Trust B, uh, something goes wrong with Trust B uh, and then a, and then the claims brought against the one corporate trustee um, could you then get into the insolvency regime 
where you know you could have a liquidator, for example, come in and say, okay, well, you know, I've got a, a right to indemnities with Trust A, it has nothing to do with this particular matter, um, but you know, I can call upon. Uh, some of these these assets, and then you're getting into arguments about whose assets are what. You don't in those situations. Generally, the other trusts are isolated. I say generally because there might be scenarios where there've been cross guarantees or something like that. But what it does mean is if you've got a corporate trustee that maybe acts for you know ten trusts, twenty two hundred. If there's an insolvency event for one, all of the others have to appoint a new trustee. And there's a case a while ago, Newmarket trustees there, they tried to argue, even if a corporate trustee acts for multiple trusts and there is an insolvency, they ought not be able to be liquidated or put into receivership because of those other trusts. The High Court accepted it. The Court of Appeal said no. And that is now grounds under the Trust Act for a trust to be removed. Somewhat extraordinarily, a lot of law firms and accountants still use one uncapitalized um, company to act for multiple trusts that are not related in any way. And I find that absolutely inexplicable. Yeah, it's extraordinary. Um, look, I, I want to get onto the topic of, you know, we've talked about, um, you know, trustees being appointed and coming in. I want to talk about retirement and removal. But before we do, um, beer trust. What's a beer trust? A beer trust is a situation where... Spell, spell B-A-R-E, not B-E-E-R, <laughs> for those listeners out there. A bear trust is when you happen to hold an asset and, and it's, not, it's not yours. You've given me something and you say, hey, Vicky, hold this. Don't, don't do anything with it. You can only do with it what I tell you. Okay, let's say I've got a really nice piece of artwork. I can give this to you mm-hmm. and say I want you to hold this um, as, as, a, as a bear trustee for me. And so yeah. that means I don't have any discretion. I can only transfer it as you direct. And from a tax perspective, if I'm holding an asset as a bear trustee, um, Income Tax Act looks through me to who the true owner is. Okay, all right. Well, that makes perfect sense. So, uh, look, things change. You know, the only thing that doesn't change is change itself. Uh, you've got a bunch of uh, trustees of a trust. Uh, one of them says, look, I've, I've had enough. Um, I, I, I don't want to be a trustee anymore. Presumably they can just, they can just retire. Is that, is that how it works? Correct. If the tru- sometimes a trustee will specify how a trustee retires. If the trustee is silent, the trustee specifies what you do to retire. However... Some trustees, when they retire, particularly professionals, they are met with disbelief from their co-trustees. What do you mean you want to retire? What? We'll have to appoint someone else and spend all that money on the conveyancing. No, we don't agree. You can't go. And you cannot stop someone from retiring. But the other scenario, people retire. They might discover there's been what we might call legally a bit of a boo-boo. And they realise we've got a liability problem. You can't retire to avoid liability. So you you, you might retire or you might be removed and a new trustee or trustees appointed, but you'll remain liable for any breaches of trust incurred during the tenure of your appointment. All right. Now, what about the uh, sort of the the flip, well, not the flip side, but the the other scenario, and that is you've got a trustee who, you know, I've mentioned before has gone rogue and you need to get them um, off as a trustee. Uh, We're talking about the removal process. Um, How does that operate? Normally in a contentious situation, you'll need the assistance of the court. 
We do now, under the Trust Act, we've now got the ability where, say you, I hold the power of removal, and so I can remove the rogue trustee, we'll worry about liability later, but they won't sign transfer documents. Now we've got provisions under the Trusts Act that make it a lot easier to remove a trustee, and maybe they haven't gone rogue, maybe they lost mental capacity. So we can remove them, we can vest the trust assets in the new or continuing trustees, and then separately deal with any claims against the trustee. Prior to the Trusts Act, we would need the help of the court always. But if, for whatever reason, we do need the help of the court, that's an application to the High Court. Okay. And as lawyers need to be engaged, there's costs that all go with that. Right, let's jump to the tail end of a trust life. Okay, for whatever reasons, um, uh, a decision is made uh, to wind the trust up. I mean, who who makes the decision? Some trusts have what's called a power of revocation. So sometimes there'll be a power reserved to the settlor or some other person. We don't normally do that, though, because if you've got the power to wind the trust up, that's like a proprietary proprietary right. And so say that trust was settled for creditor protection. If you were bankrupted and you've got this right to bring a trust to an end, that then could mean that the assets of the trust could be available to your creditors. So the official assignee would be able to exercise the right that you had. Potentially. And, you know, we had our Supreme Court in the Clayton and Clayton case look at um, Mr. Clayton and all the rights he had within his trust, um, appointment of um, trustees, beneficiaries, winding up the trust, uh, and deemed those rights to be a form of relationship property that could be exercised. Um uh, is, is this? Do you think that case was really um, a, a, an attack on the independence of a trust as a as a separate? You know, as a, it's not a separate legal entity. I mean, it's obviously made up of the trustees, uh, but in terms of certainty of of how trusts can operate. Yes, one thing about Clayton though, it was very unusual. He was the sole trustee. He had an extraordinary amount of power. And what the court said was that because of the totality of his power, that meant that he had a proprietary interest that was equal to the value of the assets of the trust. That was taken into consideration in the relationship. And with Clayton, they reached, they settled out of court. So we had a decision that to a certain extent is slightly divorced because there was a settlement. But the odd thing about that case is that it didn't mean it wasn't a sham. It wasn't illusory. It was still a trust. And let's or, say or as alter ego. Yep. Any yeah. of those things. But let's say the assets are worth $10 million. Yeah. And so for relationship property purposes, he has to account to his wife or spouse or partner $5 million. If you were going to sell the assets, that, that trust, together with all those other beneficiaries, I've always been slightly troubled that the value of the assets was just the straight market value rather than reflecting the impediments there might have been to fully cleaning it out. Yeah. But but what but is it, you know, an affront on trusts? The simple solution there is don't have trusts where those powers are so wide. Put some impediments in place because the stronger the impediments, the harder it is to unilaterally deal with trust assets. So give it a degree that, of independence from the yeah. from the trustee settler as such. 
Okay. So what's involved in winding a trust up? Like, let's say we've we've got a trust for whatever reasons it's come to its natural end, or you know, there's maybe you know a, a relationship separation, and the assets are being distributed as part of a settlement, like Clayton case. How how is the how is the trust wound up, and I guess brought to an end? First off, you've got the natural end. So you've you've reached the end, you've reached the end, however long it's supposed to run for. Then at the end, the assets vest and say vest in the final beneficiaries. So the trust runs its natural course and ends, and there's assets left. They are simply divided up as the deed specifies. So say a trust comes to an end that's got a neat million dollars and two final beneficiaries, and the deed says on the final vesting day, you hold the assets for the final beneficiaries. The trustees then have no discretion left. All they do is they hand over the money, halvesies, that's it. Tell IRD it's all over, pay any taxes, that's all she wrote, folks. Amazing. Look, uh, Vicky Amundsen, author of several books, including Trustee Liability, What Every Trustee Needs to Know, uh, in its second edition, published by uh, Walters and Kluwer. Thank you very much for coming on the Law Down Under podcast. Greatly appreciated. Boy, we covered a lot in this in this session. You could t- certainly tell there's, there's a lot more sitting under the surface there, and I'd encourage people to um, check out some of your publications. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode of the Law Down Under podcast. You're welcome to join in on the discussion via my podcast page, which you can access at patterson.co.nz. That's p-a-t-t-e-r-s-o-n dot c-o dot n-z. Thanks for supporting the podcast and tune in again for more on the law, its application and the future of the law here down under.